listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. Well, the end of 2022 is ending on form. I'm recovering from my second bout of COVID, uh, so hopefully I can just about make it through uh, this episode. Um, Edward, it's been, a, it's been a fairly eventful year in astronomical uh, senses, and not least because of something that happened pretty much this time uh, last year. We're recording this a couple of days before Christmas Day, but Christmas Day 2021 was, um, was a different kind of birthday for astronomers uh, around the world. It was uh, the birth of a, a new telescope. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a a telescope with one of the longest gestation periods in history. Yes. Um, <laughs> it had been uh, delayed and delayed and delayed. Um, but uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, JWST, um, was launched um, on 25th of December and um in 2021 and i watched it i watched the launch with my two then four-year-olds on christmas day in our pajamas uh it was one of the highlights for us actually the kids really liked seeing uh, a rocket and have asked if there's going to be another one this christmas day so uh, uh they're just <laughs> going to have to watch the king instead i think <laughs> yes um well it it takes a a while to say gestation period of several decades i mean that's not uncommon for space telescopes this one was particularly dragged out um with budget cuts and cancellations and uh, and so on then um well i say budget cuts it then went extraordinarily over budget and cost 10 billion dollars or or thereabouts depending on who you ask um but uh the launch incredibly complicated as it was went um seemed perfectly to plan the mirror unfolded the uh the the sun shield unfurled and spread out and so on uh and and we got a very fairly quick uh announcement that everything was was going to plan uh and it take it took a a little while for results to start coming out with such things space telescopes are, are fairly um complicated beasts uh and so it wasn't until i think about it was about july time we got the first uh, real science results or real images rather from from JWST in, in what's called I think the early release observations which is where they they start releasing those very early so people can see just what this space telescope is is capable of uh, but since then we've had a flurry of, of results I thought it'd be a good chance uh, one year on to look at uh, a, a few of those and the kind of things that JWST has done and a few things that um, maybe hopefully it will do uh, in the future. Uh, now, one of the things it's done is is look within our solar system. Uh, it, although its its primary goal has been to look much much further afield, is that build that's what's built as in terms of its science objectives. One of the things it can do is take pretty revolutionary images of, of things in our solar system, and that's not least because it's got this six and a half meter mirror, which gives it great uh, sensitivity. But also it's looking at different wavelengths and different wavelengths of light tell us uh, very, very different things. And we see uh, different. We learn something new about the even the planets in our solar system that we think we're we know so well, don't we? Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, taking <clears throat> particularly. So this is something that uh, I learned from a colleague of mine who used to uh, be the, the principal investigator at uh, uh, Spitzer, which is in some ways the forerunner to the the James Webb Space Telescope and uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope, which was a, a, an infrared uh, telescope uh, that was in space. Um, 
you look you pointed at something bright in the solar system actually normally you do that for calibration point um purposes um but they pointed spitzer at jupiter and james webb has done exactly the same pointed at jupiter nobody really knew what they would find and also it's it's quite difficult um Planets move relatively quickly compared to the things out in space, which move fairly slowly um, uh, or, or, you know, appear not to move at all. What they saw uh, with JWST was quite surprising. They saw these beautiful aurora in the north and the south um, of Jupiter glowing. Um, but they also see that the, the, the great red spot glows as well. So uh, remember, this is infrared light that we're looking at. So we're looking at things that are, are fairly cold. So you've got um, aurora, but you've also get to see the the rings around Jupiter as well, which is uh, which is really uh, quite beautiful. You don't tend to think of Jupiter as having rings. You think of Saturn, but actually um, all of the gas giants do have rings as well uh, that are just extremely faint. And, and you mentioned this is an infrared telescope, of course. We haven't really mentioned uh, what what the importance of that is. So this, although sometimes billed as, as a successor to Hubble, as you said, it's more like a successor to, in, in many ways, to things like Spitzer and infrared telescopes beforehand. So this this doesn't have any observation, really, in the, uh, in, in the optical part of the spectrum, really. It's all in what's called the near and the mid-infrared. So from uh, a, a couple of microns or thereabouts, uh, about a micron in, in, in wavelengths, so that's just beyond red. Uh, in the in the rainbow so it's just redwoods of red um uh in in the infrared out to to about 30 microns so the the wavelength numbers might not mean anything to uh, to people but this means we're looking at as you said we're looking at cold stuff uh and and out in the outer solar system there's quite a lot of very cold stuff where it's nowhere near as warm as it is uh, here in the in the inner solar system and i think jupiter's rings are a, a, a nice uh, example of that jupiter's rings were only discovered when spacecraft flew past Jupiter, I think, in the 1970s. And so to then be able to see them from Earth without having to send a spacecraft there is uh, uh, it's quite cool. Yeah, it's quite amazing, really. Um, and uh, the, the other thing about JWST is that it's got really quite exquisite resolution. What we're used to seeing with Hubble is very detailed pictures um, and from ground-based telescopes as well. But with infrared light and uh, further red, so sort of radio light, um, the resolution becomes poorer and poorer because you need a bigger and bigger telescope to, to get good resolution as the wavelength increases. And um, this is a huge dish on JWST. So you've got good resolution of things that we haven't had good resolution on uh, in the past. And another key example of that in our solar system is is the moon Titan. So uh, Saturn's largest moon. Um, it's it's pretty much the size of Mercury. It's planet sized in in, in that sense. You know, five thousand kilometers across, or, or or something like that. So uh, was that a third, a third the size of the Earth, a third to a half the size of the Earth? Uh, and it's this this moon with a very very thick atmosphere. Uh, we've not really been able to with telescopes that we've used in the past from here on Earth. We've not been able to see through the atmosphere. Uh, it's got a, a thick, hazy atmosphere covered in carbon dioxide and methane and so on. And you just see the cloud tops. But in the near infrared and the mid infrared, particularly the near infrared, you can peer through those clouds. And actually, the, the observations of Titan have shown maybe reflections from lakes and so on on the surface of glints of sunlight, which is, again, something that we've we've not seen other than from spacecraft in orbit around Saturn. 
Yeah, that that is really quite amazing to be able to peer through clouds um, to see to see whatever's underneath, whether it's land or whether it's oceans. It's very difficult to know because um, uh, the resolution of that, because Titan is so small that we've got a fairly hazy picture um, and it's not like we can move JWST any closer um, to get a better picture. It's not going to fly by like a, a like a spacecraft. It's it's a strange spacecraft in that sense. Is that it's um it's at it's at a fixed distance um uh, from uh, the it's in uh, it it's in a stable point, but it's moving around the sun. Uh, so it's not going out into space to explore these things. In terms of taking amazing pictures as well, as you say, we're, we're a long way away from places like Titan. So the resolution uh, isn't quite as good as what you get from being you know, up close and personal with, uh, uh, with, with a spacecraft actually going past, right past Titan. But the other thing that, that JWST has is, as well as cameras, is spectrometers, uh, again, in the near and the mid infrared. So across its full wavelength range and the spectra that they've not been released yet about the observations of Titan, as far as I know, but the spectra that we uh, we can see from that. Uh, you learn an awful lot from spectra in new parts of the the wavelength. They tell us about the composition of the gases and the various objects there. Yeah, that's right. Um, the you can you can think of a, a spectrum as being like the fingerprints of the light. So if you um, <clears throat> although you get amazing pictures from JWST, the spectra is where a lot of the science will be done because um, we can identify you can uh, you can identify different elemental compositions um but that also is just one part of the picture as well um so you can say see if you're looking at a cloud of, of gas and dust you can see different compositions of that um but uh you can also uh look at things that are at different distances within a cloud um using the spectra as well um and so it sort of gives you a 3d map in that sense and it tells you about things that are moving and all sorts of stuff. So you can tell an awful lot of information from the uh, uh, from the spectra. It, it took amazing pictures of Neptune, the atmosphere of uh, of Neptune. Again, seeing Neptune's rings, uh, nice glowing brightly on some of its moons. Um, it's much further away, so than Saturn. So we didn't get detailed images of any of its uh, of its moons, of course, and they're, they're all generally smaller. But again, that's got storms in its atmosphere that we have seen from the Earth uh, before in, in the infrared, but nowhere near this this detailed. Um, and and having this now observatory that can make these these observations is going to be uh, uh, I think uh, revolutionary for observations of the outer solar system um, over the over the year. And it, again, it's it's not just going to fly past. It's not going to get very close, but it can just continue observing these things for hopefully many years. Yeah, some of the observations that we've got, particularly of Titan, um, you were looking at the snapshot of you imagine taking a snapshot of the Earth with cloud cover. And you come back, you know, a day, an hour later, and the, the clouds have all moved, and you can you can see a different picture of the planet, and the planet's rotated. Um, so with with Titan, which is a moon, um, we could do exactly the same, and and just build up a, a different picture as as it changes. Uh, moving further afield, the other thing that that JWST has been able to do is to look at uh, the formation of uh, of stars. Uh, now, stars they're obviously a lot a lot further away than the stuff in our solar system, or other stars are at least, uh, and they tend to form from these massive clouds of of, of gas and dust. Uh, it took an it released an image uh, a few months ago of of uh, I guess a postcard image uh, um, that we've seen before in, in astronomy. It was one of the first 
big images that the Hubble Space Telescope released back in the in the 1990s. And that's of something called the Pillars of Creation. Uh, this is an image that I imagine most people have probably seen at some point. Um, it's got to be one of the most reproduced astronomical images uh, in the world. Of These three fingers of gas and dust, each several light years long, uh, uh, actually pointing towards a, a cluster of stars that you often don't see in the images. Uh, but those, whereas Hubble in optical light saw these, these clouds of gas and dust or the outer surfaces of them silhouetted against some background light, JWST in the infrared can see within the clouds of gas and dust. One of the, like you said, um, the pillars of creation, which is actually part of uh, something called the Eagle Nebula, Messier 16, um, which is uh, a fairly large area. And the pillars of creation are just one very small part of that, um, are a star forming nebula. So there are stars that are that are being formed inside that, but not, not actually that many stars. Um, uh, originally, when the pillars of creation came out, uh, it was touted that there were, you know, that this was a, a rich star field. But actually, we think that it's probably not as rich now. Um, but it's a it's a great example of um, stars forming uh, in a stellar nursery. Uh, one of the great things about JWST is being able to see these stars forming these these proto stars. So things that are not quite a gas cloud, not quite a star yet, but uh, but halfway in between. Um, in the process of, of forming. So the gas is, is being pulled in towards the gravitational centre of what will become a star in, in millions of years. And I think one of the, one of the amazing things about JWST with its, its enormous wavelength range is being able to look at the not just that near-infrared, which is close to optical, and see maybe some of those stars. They might be slightly cooler, but seeing them glowing, but also seeing the, the real the structure of this gas and dust, all with the same telescope. Uh, not MTU, several telescopes will do that uh, at the same time. So it, it does give this this unprecedented view of these of these objects uh, across a really broad range uh, of wavelengths. Um, and I think because the image was slightly bigger, the, the the pillars of creation, instead of looking like three fingers, actually starts to look like the claws on a glove uh, and so on as well. You can almost see the, the hand behind it, people comparing it to Thanos' hand and, and, uh, and all sorts from, from Avengers. But um, <laughs> may, maybe it'll end up with a new name. Uh, but but there so images of, of pillars of, of creation and learning how stars are forming. Um, the, the other thing that um, uh, JWST can do is look at the deaths of stars and what happens when stars die. Uh, now these can be incredibly explosive events. They can create supernova flashes of light that we see hanging around in our sky, sometimes out or often outshining the galaxies that those stars uh, are a part of. Uh, and these can last for for weeks uh, or months. But when you get to smaller scales or smaller mass stars, they don't necessarily die in, in uh, uh, breathtaking explosions that that uh, outshine their galaxies. They can be more sedate affairs, uh, but these are no less uh, spectacular to look at. Uh, they form something called planetary nebulae, a very uh, confusing name. Uh, we'll come on to, to why that is in a second, because to explore planetary nebulae uh, and what we're learning with JWST, I was joined by Dr. Makako Matsura and Dr. Roger Wesson, both based here at Cardiff University, and to explore what they've been learning about planetary nebulae. Roger, tell us about, in general, the study of planetary nebulae. This is what these things are called. First of all, um, why do we call them planetary nebulae? Because they don't involve planets at all. Uh, and secondly, what do we learn? What, 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 how are they formed? What, what are they roughly? 
So why are they called planetary nebulae? It's one of the worst names for a thing in astronomy, uh, led to centuries of confusion. Uh, when they were very first observed, they looked like very simple objects, just kind of faint, small, round disks in the sky. And William Herschel and some of those earlier, earlier people who were looking at them thought they looked a little bit like the giant gas planets like Jupiter and Saturn. So, uh, so they called them planetary nebulae, meaning nebulae that looked a bit like planets, uh, rather than them having anything actually physically to do with planets. I mean, at that time, they didn't know what they were. Um, as time went by, it became clear that they are formed when stars like the sun and somewhat heavier, up to about eight times as heavy as the sun, end their lives. They run out of nuclear fuel in their core and they expand. They become red giants and then red, well, red, uh, you know, almost supergiant stars that then uh, eject their outer layers. And for a, a, just a few thousand years, it's a very short time in astronomical terms, uh, the outer layers get uh, illuminated by the hot core that's left behind and uh, and then drift away into space and fade away. And so they're, they're really interesting to study because they tell us if we look at what's in a planetary nebula, then we see what was in the star as it evolved. We can uh, we can understand what uh, uh, what was being formed as the star as the star burned its hydrogen and helium. And uh, that material will all return to the interstellar medium. It will then go on to form the next generation of stars. So we uh, we see how the uh, how the interstellar medium and how the galaxy uh, evolves, uh, uh, how how the stars recycle the material that they had in them at the start and uh, and uh, set up the next uh, next generation of star formation. And and so I mean because most stars that we know of in the sky are these lower mass stars that those high mass stars that create exciting explosions and so on are, are, are really the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we see these low mass uh deaths of stars are really really important for re repopulating the the uh the interstellar medium um uh Mikako, um there are numerous examples of, of these things uh out there they come in all sorts of um shapes and sizes broadly speaking you think of them as being spherical objects, but they're not all uh, spherical. I mean, that makes them look round to our point of view because we just see their projection on the sky. Um, what do we think changes the the shapes of these things as we see them on the sky? Yes, um, as you as expect, as a star, a majority of planet nebula actually sphere, spherical shape or ellipse. I can't remember exact number. I think something like 80 to 90% of these planet nebula are considered to be either ellipse, ellipse or sphere, round, I should say. Um, but there are exceptional ones. The exceptional ones are typically called bipolar. It's a well-known one is butterfly nebula. It has a waist at the bottom, uh, at the center of the near the star, and the alpha coming from the center of the stars. And it's believed these kind of irregular shapes are often called by binary companion in the system. So that's another star. So it's, that's where it's not just one star. There, crucially, there are, there are two stars there. Yes. So that's why we call it as a tango of stars in binary systems or something, sometimes multiple stars. But what's happened is if there are two stars in a system, the outflow from the planetary nebula uh, or planetary nebula upi is going to trap in the binary system and circulating around the binary companion system and form the disk. So this is a disk of of dust and gas and dust, stuff, sort yeah. of in the in the plane of in what in our in a, if there was another star in our solar system that would be probably in in the plane of the solar system type of idea. 
Yes. So, I mean, it's just like a Kuiper belt, but a little bit more thicker version of Kuiper belt or larger scale than Kuiper belt. And then what's happened is when the gas still continued to hit, uh, um, ejected from the central star and hit this disk, so probably wind is going to bend perpendicular to the disk when it hit the disk. So it's believed that is causing the bipolar because gas is going to orient to perpendicular to the disk and then it makes nice bright butterfly shape. And so that's how the Butterfly Nebula gets its, its name. There's also the Dumbbell Nebula, of course, which looks yes, surprisingly well, yeah. a bit like a dumbbell. Uh, and then astronomers, I mean, we talked about planetary nebulae being a bad name for things. There's also the Little Dumbbell Nebula. Um, yes. I think astronomers ran out of names. Um, we have a, a, a famous example uh, in the Northern Hemisphere we'll come on to later called the Ring Nebula, which is a nice, beautiful, one of these beautiful spherical ones. But actually the study that you've been uh, involved in using JWST has been uh, something uh, about a, a southern counterpart to that or a southern equivalent to that called the Southern Ring Nebula. Again, another example of, of astronomers maybe uh, not being too imaginative with their, uh, with their naming scheme. Um, the, the Southern Ring Nebula uh, is a, a beautiful object to look at. If you see the pictures of it on the, the NASA and ESA websites and so on uh, from, from JWST and, and other telescopes that have looked at it before, of course. This, this is an example of one of these systems with, with multiple stars in. So you talked about binary star systems uh, forming beautiful objects. This is, uh, it's not quite spherical, but it's not got this amazing sort of butterfly or dumbbell shape. So Makako, what's, um, with this with this system here, it's, um, uh, what are we learning about planetary nebulae from observations of the the, uh, the Southern Ring Nebula? Uh, okay, for JWST, when we looked at the images, okay, actually, there are two stars there. Um, um, if you look at the near-infrared optical image, you can see one bright star. But if it's going towards mid-infrared, which you can't quite observe well from the ground-based telescope, but of the quite very clearly with JWST, you can see there's another stars coming up much, much brighter. And actually that was the central star of Planet Nebula, which ejected all of the gas, which you can see pretty nebula right now. So what we are excited is because to emit a lot of energy in mid-infrared, the star is probably surrounded by dust. And that's because the dust is cooler, it emits at these longer wavelengths, and, and yeah. that means we can't see it well in optical light that we'd normally see from the ground. Yeah, because dust also absorbs the light from stars in shorter wavelengths, such as optical and near-infrared. So that's why it's become brighter at mid-infrared. So that's why we are excited, because we know that there should be some kind of dusty disk but to prove that the dusty disk, we have to see actual dust emission come from the near the central star. Uh, in this case, planetary nebula is very well resolved and the beautiful nebula. And you can see in the center, in the center of the system, you can really see dust emission come from the sun star. So that is definitely come from the disk from the central star. And and, and Roger, the, these uh, detections of this dusty disk tell us about. Um, there's this second star there that must be there, but actually the the fact that there's a dusty disk there tells us there's not just two stars. This is this is this gets very complicated very quickly, right? In terms of how many stars there are. So what are we learning about the the stars in this system, and maybe speculating on a little bit? Yeah, well, so there's uh, there's 
kind of indirect but nevertheless quite uh, quite uh, clear evidence for for several stars in the system so we have this bright optical companion that uh, it was not clear whether that was associated with the planetary nebula central star or whether it was just a line of sight coincidence just appeared in the sky to be close but using separate results from the Gaia space telescope it's been shown that that is uh, a member of the system so we've got the bright star we've got the dusty disk around the central star which the dusty disk implies there's two stars so that so that's that when you say dusty disk implies two stars that means there's got to be two stars making that to make that dusty disk the one in the center of the disk and then another one around the edge like Makako talked about with some of these other planetary nebulae, yeah. right? So, so we're up to a total of three. Yeah, yeah. And then if you look at the images, uh, I, it's probably not very clear on the uh, uh, unless you're looking very closely at the images. But there's a lot of concentric, uh, regularly spaced structures visible in the outer part of the planetary nebula. And if you calculate how far apart uh, those regularly spaced structures are, you see they would have been uh, emitted roughly every uh, two to three hundred years, I think. And uh, and this implies that there's a, another star within the system that's orbiting with that kind of period that as the as the material is being ejected by the planetary nebula central star, this other companion, as it orbits, is modulating that outflow, disrupting it and creating these concentric structures. So so that's uh, and, and that's not the A star. The, a, the, the, the bright star is too far away to be that. And the star that is uh, uh, whose gravity is constraining the dusty disk is too close to be that star. So there's a, that's evidence for another star in the system that we don't directly see, but uh, but it's creating these concentric structures. So that's uh, that's a, a likely fourth member of the system. And I know there are, there are theories about maybe there's a fifth member if you start looking at the jet structures and so on, that maybe there's evidence for a fifth member. But it, it gets a little bit speculative at that point, uh, I think, in terms of what what's definitely there. But having at least four companions is uh, is is a, is a new result and one that, that people have hooked on to. But um, Mikako, your study has not been so much about the, 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 the stars themselves, but you're interested in the stuff around the stars. You said the stuff that gets, that we talked about stuff being recycled into the interstellar medium. Um, in studying this object, um, what have you learned about that material around the stars? Uh, it's more like actually the dynamics at the moment, not the material composition of the material at the moment. As you can see, uh, what we have is only images. To understand the material, we need a spectra to understand which kind of composition is there. So at the moment, we are more focusing on shape, how to shape it, what is going on to make all of these shapes. So one of the one of the character is disk in the central system. Another one is nice filamentary structures found in molecular hydrogen across. Uh, we don't know why there are so many molecular filaments across. One possibility is, I mean, there are still speculative, but one possibility is there are small clumps around in the entire nebula. When these small clumps are immense by central star, these clumps start, start how to say, evaporating from the surface of dusty clumps. And it looks like, you know, comets kind of, literally what's happening in the comets. So evaporate material, make a tail, against the UV from the central star and making all of the filaments. That's one one of the possibilities. And, and, and so these look like sort of tubes of hydrogen gas that are threaded yeah. across, from our point of view, across the image, but they're yeah. actually looping, you know, they're in front of the image or behind the image from our, we're only seeing a 2D projection, of course, of this thing. And they do look amazing, these these tubes of material. So so it's thought these are, these are, these are 
uh, a, 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 you mentioned Comet as an analogy. I know it's not a perfect analogy for this. <laughs> Uh, for these things but that kind of idea of leaving stuff behind as a trail as it, as yeah. it goes around uh is is, is fascinating and, and that tells us about as you say the dynamics of how these things are these things are much more complicated than they first look yeah it's actually very complicated i think it just a simplified picture is you know central star is heating in the material and evaporating and make a tail around it but i think it's also involve, as mentioned, binary companions. So the distribution of initial one, maybe all initial uh, distribution of so-called nodes are also different from the beginning. So yeah, it's so complicated. But it's not the thing is why you can stand these shape much more, uh, how to say, how, why you can see these molecular hydrogen much more clearly in molecular hydrogen compared to ionized gas. Um, ionized gas actually looks much, much smooth and well just an ellipse whereas if you look at molecular hydrogens they are made of multitudes of cometary shapes of filaments so we don't know why that's happening it's maybe some of the uv is playing around maybe okay so lots more to lots more to study and, and you've got more uh, observations in the in the pipeline for this and similar objects i know makaka you're studying some of these what, what are you hoping to learn with jwst over the coming months and years? Uh, okay, I have two programs. One is the, to observe uh, another planet nebula called NG6302 that is often known as a butterfly nebula. So what's happened is this particular planet nebula has lots of min minerals. Um, it's so-called crystalline silicate. Essentially, you know, the uh, gemstone, kind of gemstones. Um, but, but we don't much smaller. Much smaller, yeah. We yeah. can't put that on the ring, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish I can get it. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it's quite a lot, I think. Um, yeah, in terms, of if you collect all of them, it could be a lot. I can't remember exact mass, but it's enough to uh, enough to make Earth mass. But um, I don't think we can make a ring out of it because all of them are so small, so you have to collect them. But anyway. Um, yeah, so the question is, why, why is there so, so much of them and how to make them? Um, that's another thing. As you can imagine, as a diamond, um, to make the crystalline shape of the dust, you have to have a quite high pressure or high density. To make such an environment, probably, again, binary disk is a crucial part to hold high density near the star, but cold one. So we believe there's some binary disk and that is the place to make such a nice solid crystalline dust. Not like amorphous, which is typically can find in so-called diesel engine. You know, if you yeah, have a high exhaust and have a diesel engine, you can see some soot, black soot. And they are so-called kind of amorphous dust. Uh, that is commonly found in astronomy, but that's not always the case in, in this kind of planet nebula. So we believe that it's different. And so that's about yeah the processes and the environments where these interesting um, minerals, these interesting molecules must have uh, and, and structures must have formed. And and Roger, you're also studying uh, more of these. You've got some 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 plans in the works which are uh, going to far more detail than uh, than taking taking pictures i mean the pictures are amazing but you can get a lot more information from from more than pictures right indeed yes so uh, another program that we're involved in is is looking at uh, so this is the southern ring nebula and uh, 
uh, it was named as uh, as a counterpart to the uh, the Ring Nebula, the original Ring Nebula. That's a very famous Northern Hemisphere object. It's quite uh, quite easy to see in a relatively small telescope, and it looks just like a nice uh, uh, simple ring. And uh, and yeah, we're looking at that with JWST, and what we have uh, that goes beyond the images is uh, spectroscopic data, uh, and JWST allows us to see. Uh, wavelengths that we really can't observe very well from the ground. The problem from the ground is that water vapor in the atmosphere absorbs a lot of the infrared uh, emission, which JWST out in space uh, has a completely uh, clear view. And uh, what we can see uh, in the case of the ring, uh, we're looking at, uh, we've got uh, spectroscopic observations of, uh, it's surrounded by, a, just like the Southern ring, a really clumpy uh, molecular uh, hydrogen halo. And uh, and yeah, when we look at the spectra, we see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, of uh, emission lines of molecular hydrogen uh, detail that you just couldn't possibly get from the ground. And it tells us uh, 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 we can we can we can work out uh, how hot the hydrogen gas is, uh, how much of it there is, and uh, and we can speculate about uh, how molecules form and survive in that environment. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's a harsh environment. There's uh, ultraviolet radiation from the central star and uh, material. Uh, flowing out from the central star, colliding with these clumpy uh, uh, molecular knots, and uh, and yeah, we're looking to understand how how the how the molecules form and survive in that uh, in that harsh environment. So both those projects are, that, that you described there, the, the two of you are looking at the yeah the conditions in these uh, the, the I guess maybe the is it the early stages of these planetary nebulae when they're forming, or is this is this stuff that's still happening? Still happening now? Are these knots and clumps still forming? Are these the leftovers of exciting stuff that happened uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago? Well, it's uh, I mean, the, the the lifetime of these objects is quite short. They will be uh, visible in the sky for a few, uh, maybe maybe up to about 20,000 years. And uh, and uh, what uh, what we see with these clumpy molecular knots, I mean, this is uh, this is material that was thrown off by the star before the nebula lit up. And then as the nebula lights up, as the stellar core is exposed and the stellar winds from that hot core collide with all of this molecular material, then you get uh, the, these interactions and uh, not formation that's that's happening, uh, well, happened in the last few thousand years. So very, very recent in uh, in cosmological terms, uh, not quite as uh, as uh, recent as some of the, the, the things we see appearing in the sky, but I guess maybe a fairly transient object in, in astronomical terms, um, albeit maybe not in human human lifetimes well it sounds like there's lots to study about these these objects there's just one uh, one bit of jwst uh, related uh, research so drs Mikako matsura and uh, roger wesson uh, thank you very much thank you thank you well observations of uh, dying stars is uh, something that jwst is going to carry on doing and we look forward to more results uh, on that over the the months and years and maybe decades uh, to come now, one of the things that JWST can also do is we mentioned it taking spectra of objects and looking at the fingerprints of, of, of light. It can also do that, but for multiple objects at the same time. I think this is one of the, the first times that I'm aware of doing this in the infrared and with, and with space telescopes of doing what's called multi-object spectroscopy. So instead of looking at the fingerprint of one object, looking at the fingerprint of hundreds of objects at the same time. And that just really, really boosts the power of being able to do this, doesn't it? Yeah, so um, this is this is done in uh, visible light. Uh, 
And it, it's an extremely difficult process uh, because you have to effectively, if you have, say, a group of stars and you want to take a spectrum from each one of them, you have to very carefully line up um, uh, optical fibers that, that go into a spectrograph and you have to line them up onto these different objects. Um, and something similar has to be done with JWST when, when you're taking spectra, but it's extremely worthwhile doing it. You can learn a lot about these individual objects. So for example, with a, with a field of stars, um, you can find out um, exactly what type of star it is from taking a spectrum uh, of a star. Uh, now in the visible light, you only can see you know, the visible light and in the infrared light, you, you get a much, much bigger picture um, of, of those stars. So if we could do that in infrared for larger clusters, we could tell maybe what age of these, these star clusters are. Um, we could learn uh, new things about the chemical composition of maybe the older stars. Uh, it's it's extremely interesting, but you could also put point this uh, this instrument at a nebula, and you could sample different areas of a nebula. So bits where there are stars forming, bits where there there doesn't appear to be anything, um, uh, or you could point it at you know a variety of different object galaxies, for instance, point um, uh, one part at the at the very center of the galaxy, the bulge of the galaxy, and then other other parts of it off at the spiral arms where we uh, where we can see stars being formed. It. it truly does create uh, you know amazing data and there's, there's as you said the kind of things people look, can look at with these these individual objects all all in one go i mean we've seen similar things like this with with imaging spectrographs on the herschel space observatory and uh, and so on before but i think this is this is much more um, advanced technology it's 20 years newer than, uh, than the stuff on that was on herschel and so on so uh, it it does create um uh, does does give us much more data to uh, to work with uh, you mentioned one of the things you can look at is, is is stars and galaxies forming, and of course, one of the big things that JWST was touted as being able to do was look at the first stars in the universe or evidence for the first stars in the universe. They're probably too far away to see in individual stars, uh, you know, billions and billions of light years away. But uh, it can study uh, what's going on with distant galaxies. It's already we've already had some some observations actually using these these spectrographs. Uh, of looking at the the light from these galaxies and showing that they are some of the first galaxies to have formed, just just forming you know hundreds of millions of years after the Big Bang, which is very very recent, very very young in the universe's history, and is and continues to confound some models of of how galaxies formed that early on. But also can look at uh, observations of of merging galaxies uh, that early in the universe. And again, the resolution is such that it can look at these things very very you know, billions of years ago, when, when that light left those objects, and see merging galaxies, which is something that, you know, we're not used to doing. No. Um, and uh, it, the, the way that galaxies form is a, a extremely hotly contested idea, um, whether you um, have lots of little galaxies, lots of little groups of stars, and then they, you know, they merge together and they form these these big ball-shaped galaxies and then over time do they um, uh, merge with other ones and then that produces the spiral galaxies um, or vice versa um, and so because we can only with astronomy look at light um, that comes to us it's very difficult to for us to go and explore certainly outside of the solar system it's impossible um, we we just have to be very cunning about how we do this and looking back in time is nature's great 
gift to us as astronomers uh, using the the constancy of the speed of light so the further away you look you're looking further back in time um and uh looking at these early galaxies these early stars and early galaxies could give us a really good clue of, of what's happening there and whether actually does does a black hole form and stars collect around it or does some process by stars dying mean that a black hole falls into the center of this group this proto galaxy and then it gradually accumulates more and more stars um it's uh, it's it's a very open question and one that uh, that JWST is extremely well placed to to answer. Yeah, they put out one result of looking at uh, a quasar, which has a very long phone number type name. So I won't try and uh, read that <laughs> out. Um, uh, but that was from about two billion years after the after the Big Bang, so pretty early on, and showing all these galaxies, at least maybe four galaxies, all merging uh, merging together, which is uh, again something that's that's important to see. Uh, and to be able to study to see how these things are, are forming, and, and and as you say, we'll we'll let us study how, well, hopefully, let us study how galaxies were building up in those those sort of first moment or not moments, those first billion years of the of the universe's history uh, to to let us know the uh, untangle this mystery of how, how that process worked. Um, something that, as you say, people have been studying for uh, for a long time. So there's an awful lot to come out of uh, JWST. Uh, a lot of results to uh, to look forward to over the years. I think we've we've seen the early release observations so far, but astronomers have already got bids in for time in the the first sort of full observation cycles with with uh, with the telescope uh, over the next few uh, the next six months, next year, and and, and so on. And uh, it's scheduled to last for uh, certainly at least five years, hopefully ten years. I think it was slated uh, i remember it being slated as having enough fuel to last for about 20 years if they if they can keep it running uh hubble's been up there for 30 albeit with some repair work uh over the years so jwst won't get that unfortunately but hubble is much much closer yeah <laughs> hubble is a lot closer uh uh by a few orders of magnitude so fingers crossed we've got many years of observations and uh, this isn't the first uh, anniversary edition uh, of the podcast celebrating results from jwst and there's many more many more to come on that note uh, that's it for uh, this month and of course uh, this year uh, thank you very much to my guests so Makako Matsura and Roger Wesson and of course Edward Gomez don't forget you can find past episodes at pythagastro.uk where you can also subscribe to the podcast you can also search for us on Spotify just search for Pythagorean Astronomy until next year goodbye goodbye <laughs> You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.